Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. I read a story this week about the former CEO of JetBlue. His name was David Nealman. And as you can imagine, as a CEO, he has to travel quite a bit. And so, of course, he would travel on his own airline. But instead of taking the privilege of being the CEO of the company and maybe sitting up front in the first class, he would actually spend those flights as one of the flight attendants. He would serve the people on the plane. He would clean the bathrooms. He would do everything else that the people were doing. And I just thought how cool that is, and an example that he was setting for the people there. And it's really a way for us to start considering uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at together this morning as we continue our series as a church family in the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. We have been calling this series a better way, as you can see from the banners up there. And the reason for that is because Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been writing a letter to a church, an actual church that really existed And if you've been with us, you've seen that this church is sort of on the brink of division. There's all kinds of fighting and backbiting going on inside of this church. Division over what? Well, pretty much about everything that you can imagine. But Paul's whole point, as we've seen week after week in this series and writing this letter, and we've been saying it week after week as well, is that he wants to show them and us still today a better way how to be God's people in this world. And if you were here last week, we really came to the culmination of this whole letter in 1 Corinthians 3 when we're told that the better way, the most excellent way for a church to be God's people in this world is the way of love. Not the kind of love that the world talks about today that fluctuates up and down depending on our emotions, but love like Jesus. Love that is sacrificial, love that is patient, love that is kind, love that shows itself in action. That's the better way. And as Jeff reminded us last week, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, people outside of the church even know about that passage of Scripture. But what we have to remember is that it's sandwiched right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is addressing yet another one of the divisions that are going on in this church at Corinth. And if you were here earlier through chapter 12, we see what this division is. It's a division over spiritual gifts. So just to review very quickly, in chapter 12, what does Paul talk about? He talks about the variety of the spiritual gifts that God has given the church and how each one of those gifts is necessary if the body of Christ is going to fulfill its common purpose in this world. Every gift just is important. Then Paul strategically, brilliantly really, goes into chapter 13 and he talks about the way we use these gifts, the way of love. And now in chapter 14, he's going to come back to the issue of spiritual gifts, and he's going to concentrate on two particular gifts that are dividing the church at Corinth, are the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Now, from what we're about to read, it seems pretty clear, here's what's happening that's causing this division. There are some in the church of Corinth who are holding that the spiritual gift of tongues is the most important spiritual gift that a person could have. And so therefore, unlike the CEO of JetBlue there, they're actually exalting themselves, saying those of us who have the spiritual gifts of tongues are really the important ones in this church. We are the superior Christians. 
Now you could probably see pretty quickly how this would cause division. I mean, can you imagine even in our church today if we were to say something like, this is the gift that you should have, and if you don't have it, you're considered a lesser citizen in our church. It would be hurtful. And it would be untrue. I want to say quickly, Paul never discounts the importance of the gift of tongues. In fact, he's going to say he has it himself. But you can see how raising one of those gifts above all the other gifts could cause some division. And so in this section that we're going to be looking at this morning, if you're following on your notes, Paul shows a better way to think about spiritual gifts. Paul shows a better way to think about spiritual gifts. Now, what's even better about this passage we're going to be talking about is that Paul is going to lay out a principle, you know, whether we we get lost in the minutia of tongues and prophecy today, and we're going to talk about all that, but really more importantly, he's going to lay out a principle that when we think about when we're driving to church on a Sunday, when we're coming to gather together with others, this is the kind of thing that we should be thinking about when we're coming. So we're going to talk about that principle, and that's what I'm most looking forward to, but we're also going to talk about uh, these other issues. So why don't you take your Bible and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're starting in verse 1, going all the way through verse 25 this morning. And so if you didn't bring a Bible, I always encourage you to grab one of the Bibles in the seat underneath you there. We have some black Bibles there, and you can find 1 Corinthians 14 on page 932. And we like to say this regularly. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of that. Now, we're just going to do two things today. Here's where we're going first. We're going to talk about those spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy and understand what they are and what they were used for. Then we're going to go and look at how those gifts really speak to that bigger principle I wanted to talk to you about that Paul would say, this is really the big idea here of what I want us to consider about this, okay? So that's where we're going. Uh, I know we've prayed already, but would it be okay if we pray again because we want to make sure it's not just me speaking, but it's him speaking to us through his word. So let's pray. Lord, we set aside time every Sunday to open up your word because in it are the words of life. And so speak life to us today. Perhaps you need to speak words of encouragement to someone today. May it be so. Perhaps there are words of conviction here. May it be so. But whatever you would speak, we want to be willing listeners. So we offer ourselves again to you this morning. We have through song, through giving, and now through our ears, we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul starts it this way. He says, follow the way of love. Notice, moving into this controversial subject, what does he remind them of? The way of love. And eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Now would you read verse 4 on your notes out loud with me there. It says, Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'll keep going. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. 
but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, in order to understand this passage, we have to understand what is meant both by the spiritual gift of tongues and the spiritual gift of prophecy. So let's take some time to understand those two things. First, I'll define it for you. Tongues. Tongues, if you're on your note, is the divine enablement to speak to another language, to speak in another language. Some of you know that this gift first makes its appearance in Acts chapter 2, which is on the day of Pentecost, the day when the disciples are gathered in that upper room, they're praying together, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And here's what we read in Acts 2, verses 3 through 4. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, what happens is they start going outside in that room. They go on the streets of Jerusalem, and this would have been a time when there would have been a lot of visitors coming to Jerusalem to participate in the Pentecost. And these visitors start hearing their own languages being spoken by these disciples. Now, have you ever visited a foreign country before? Can you imagine what it would be like if you were trying to communicate with someone and it was super frustrating because, you know, they don't speak English, they speak a different language, when all of a the sudden they're given the ability to speak perfect, crystal clear English. That would be an amazing experience, and you'd probably be like, what is going on right now? Well, that's exactly what the people in Acts chapter 2 were asking. In fact, here's their question in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Well, Peter, he's not going to pass up this opportunity. He's going to go ahead and tell them exactly what this means, and he gives this incredible sermon, this message, and he says, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel talked about. Way back when, hundreds of years ago, that was to serve as a sign to God's people that this Jesus, whom they had just crucified, was in fact raised from the dead, proving himself to be Lord and Messiah and opening up the path of life for everyone. And we're told at the end of Acts chapter 2 that over 3,000 people respond to the invitation of Jesus that very day. And people have been responding to that invitation ever since. Now, fast forward a little bit, the churches start getting uh, established, and we get a letter like 1 Corinthians, and it becomes apparent that the gift of tongues is not only or always the ability to speak in another human language. In fact, people were given this ability to actually speak in what is called the language of heaven, or the language of angels. This does not mean that people go into an ecstatic trance or speak gibberish. In fact, uh, Paul later warns in this passage that we are to never separate our worship from our mind. But usually, unless there's an interpretation of what is spoken, the manifestation of the gift of tongues and in the way that it was happening in the church at this time was that it was for an individual It was called a prayer language, and according to Paul, it was an incredibly uplifting experience for the person who had this gift. He says it in verse 4, it can edify the person who experiences it. Now, some have argued that this gift and some of the other miraculous gifts that we see in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, like the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy even that we're going to talk about, they're no longer gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church today. 
Where do they come up with this idea? Well, this idea comes from the idea that we've now got the Bible. And these more miraculous gifts were intended to serve as signs for the message of the fulfillment of Jesus. But now that we have the message, they've ceased to exist and they are no longer needed in the church. If you want to know where we stand on this as a church, you can find Jeff after the service. I think he'll be down front somewhere here. (laughs) I'm kidding. Quite simply, we do not believe that these gifts have ceased to be in operation in the church today. I have dear brothers and sisters who have the spiritual gift of tongues. I will tell you, I have prayed for the spiritual gift of tongues like Paul encourages us to do in this chapter, but God has chosen not to give that gift to me, and that's okay, because not everybody is supposed to have every single gift, even the gift of tongues. In fact, let me just say how divisive this issue can still be today, because while some people teach that this gift no longer exists, there's one extreme. There are other people, other churches that teach that every believer should have this gift. If you have been baptized in the Spirit, you will and should have the gift of speaking in tongues. It's actually referred to as the second baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. Now, when I was in seminary, I actually worked at a church that this was sort of what they taught. Not sort of, it is what they taught. And so I just kind of got to see firsthand some of the damage that that kind of teaching can cause. Literally what they would do is they would take the student ministry away for a weekend. And the whole point of the weekend was just to pray that God would give the students the spiritual gift of tongues. And some of them would come back and they'd actually have the spiritual gift of tongues. Pretty great. Some of them would come back and they would not have the spiritual gift of tongues. And can you imagine how it felt to them? They were literally made to feel like second-class citizens, much like what was happening in the church of Corinth here. If you want to know where we stand on this, I would simply say we stand where Paul does at the end of chapter 12, verse 30, where he makes it abundantly clear, if you're on your notes, that not everybody will or should have the gift of tongues. We are given the gift of the Holy Spirit the moment we accept Christ. That is unquestioned. Some people are given the gift of tongues, but not everybody will or should have this gift. So let me just pause here and say something. Isn't it sad that the very things that were dividing the church in the first century can still divide the church today? Satan knows how to tear us apart, doesn't he? But Paul's whole letter, Paul's whole letter, why are we spending a year in 1 Corinthians? Because there's a better way. There's a better way than division. There's a better way than backbiting. It's the way of love. So are we going to disagree on some of these issues as churches? Yeah, and that's okay. We can still choose the way of love in the way we dialogue and discourse and talk about these different kinds of things. If we don't choose the way of love, the same thing that happened in this church can happen in the church with a capital C. And even worse, we will hurt our witness in this world. And so we need to move on to the gift of prophecy. Let's define that really quickly here. The gift of prophecy is the divine enablement to speak a message from God. The divine enablement to speak a message from God. 
Now, I know when I say the word prophecy, we tend to think of predicting the future, sort of like I did when I predicted the Cubs to win the World Series two years before it happened. I'm going to remind you of that often. That's like my greatest moment in life almost. (laughs) No, it's not even close to one of my greatest moments in life. But that's not really what the Bible usually is talking about when it's talking about prophecy. True prophecy simply is a word from God spoken by a representative. It's just a word from God spoken from a representative. And what Paul says distinguishes prophecy from tongues is that prophecy is spoken in intelligible speech that everyone can understand. And as verse 3 says, it's a message that would comfort or encourage or strengthen the church. Be careful here. When a prophet would speak, nobody in the church thought of it as an infallible word from God. As in, thus saith the Lord, do whatever I'm about to say now. No, Paul says we should weigh whatever the prophet says carefully. But to the best we can understand, it appears to be a sudden insight that would come on an individual about a passage of scripture or a topic of discussion in the church or a particular situation. I bet you more than anything, you've actually witnessed the spiritual gift of prophecy at work and you didn't even know it. Maybe there was a discussion in the church about a vital issue, maybe a doctrinal matter or a practical matter, and then someone stands up in the middle of all the arguing and the fighting, and they give this powerful, unplanned speech, and everybody is like, oh, yeah. I got to see this just last May. We were having one of our Q&A sessions here at the church, and things were getting a little heated, and we were, we were having good discussion and good argument and good debate, and then one young man just kind of raised his hand, and he spoke a word, and everyone in the room was like, okay, moving on. I think he pretty much nailed that right there. Now, there is debate as to whether or not the gift of prophecy is always an unplanned spoken word. Some people wonder if certain forms of preaching are sort of like the way that they understood prophecy to be in the early church here in Corinth. In other words, maybe it's more important than the delivery method. It's what actually is being said and what's happening when it's being said. And so here's the clear thing you can know when someone has the spiritual gift of prophecy. If you're following on your notes there, when it's used, there's a clear sense of God is speaking directly to me. God is speaking directly to me. I know some of you have had this experience before. How do I know? Because you've come up to me or Jeff or Brian or anybody else after the service and go, why were you looking at me that entire message? Or how did you know about that? I will never forget as long as I live. One day I was at the Fit Club. And this was a day after I had just preached on Philippians chapter 2, which is probably one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture, lifting up the name of Jesus. And I'm there on my treadmill with my earplugs on, doing my thing, and I see this lady start walking towards me, and she's got this very, very skeptical look on her face. And I'm like, okay, I can't wait for this. I pull out my earplugs, and she's like, hi, I visited your church yesterday. So, okay. How did you do that? I said, how did, you, how did I do what? She goes, how did you manipulate that service to be like so powerful where it felt like God was actually talking to me? And I said, trust me. We're not pulling strings up here, manipulating things. That was the Holy Spirit at work in your life. 
I'm still think not, I still think she was a little bit skeptical about that. But that's a little bit how prophecy works. You just have this sense, like, that was a word for me. That was a word for me from God through somebody else. Now, more important than either of these two gifts, let's talk about what their purpose is. According to Paul, if you're on your notes, tongues edify an individual while prophecy edifies everyone. Now, this isn't true all the time. Sometimes there's an interpreter for tongues, but in the way the Corinthians were using it here, it's certainly true. In fact, look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Paul now illustrates this point using three examples, starting in verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Paul just uses three illustrations here, right? He says, in order for musical instruments to be enjoyed and understood, they have to play a tune. In order for a bugler to rally the troops together to to go to battle, they have to play the right tune. In order for you to understand somebody else, they have to speak the same language as you. And so this gift of tongues, when it's used this way in the church, it's just like noise. It's making no difference for those who are there. In fact, it is making the people of the church feel like foreigners in the very own church. Now, I'm going to skip verse 12 for now. We'll come back to it, I promise. But in verse 13, he's going to keep going on this idea and talk about how this is taking place in Corinth. He says, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but will I also pray with my understanding? I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. And let me just sum those verses up very quickly for you. You may having, be having the greatest worship experience of your life. You may be singing and praising and praying, but nobody else around you can understand. Therefore, nobody else is edified. Nobody else is built up. Imagine, imagine if tonight I were to go home and I were to prepare a gourmet meal, like we're going to eat steak and potatoes and pick a vegetable. Some of you would not pick a vegetable. That's okay. And I get everything all set up around the dinner table, and I call my family to the table, and I, I sit there, and I enjoy that meal, and they have nothing to eat. That, that's what's happening here in this church. There are people who are having these experiences but they're just for them. And they're not edifying those that they're worshiping with. 
And so he goes on to say in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Important to note in this chapter, Paul never disparages the gift of tongues. In fact, he's glad he has it. But he goes on to say in verse 19, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So what is Paul saying? He's saying speaking in tongues in the church, at least without interpretation, does not edify the church. But something like prophecy does. Does speaking in tongues edify the person speaking them? Yes, that's a good thing. Paul never says it's not. He doesn't criticize the gift of tongues here. It is, after all, a gift that the Holy Spirit has given to some, including him. But when it's done in the context of a worship gathering, speaking in tongues without interpretation can cause confusion, discouragement, not edification and encouragement. The gift of prophecy, on the other hand, he says, is much more helpful for when the church gathers together because it's focused less on an individual and more on a community, including those who are not even a part of the community yet. And so if that's the case, he says, I'd rather speak 10,000 words of prophecy, which is the highest number in the Greek language, rather than five words in a tongue. Why? Because I'm more concerned about the people I'm worshiping with than I am about myself including the people who may be visiting our church. And that's what Paul gets into in this next section here. What about those who don't yet know Jesus? Look at verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. How do children think? Well, they only think about themselves usually, right? Their worldview isn't big enough often to consider the other people in their life. And so Paul's like, stop thinking that way. Stop thinking about only your worship experience. Think about the others that you're worshiping with. Verse 21, in the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. These are some of the most confusing verses in this chapter. But really, what he's saying here, he's quoting the Old Testament, saying, when I give you the gift of tongues, they're to be a sign for the Jewish unbelievers that the time has come. Messiah is here. And so it's for those who are unbelievers, right? Like, oh, I'm not sure about this Jesus. Oh, actually, this sign has taken place. So I can be sure that he's the one that the Bible was talking about. Verse 23, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And here Paul gives us the second reason he would rather the church speak in prophecy than tongues. If you're on your notes, tongues can also confuse unbelievers. I think this is such a cool glimpse into how the first century church works because what we read here in this passage that apparently, much like today, it could be common for visitors to come to the gathering of a church. And just like today, Paul expects us to be hospitable to those visitors. And so here he's imagining a scene where the church is at worship and each person is speaking in their own language here and we got these visitors who come and visit. They would have thought, These people are out of their minds. 
what is going on here? And the result is they'd want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, I'm not sure I need to say this, but I'll go ahead and say this. This is one of the reasons we don't practice the spiritual gift of tongues in our worship gatherings, even if there were an interpreter. Why? Because we want nothing, no stumbling block to get in the way of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want to confuse people who are coming in. You may think, well, that's going too extreme. I understand that position. Let's debate it. Let's discuss it. Let's dialogue it in the way of love. But that's where we stand. Now, read verses 24 and 25 on your notes with me there. It says, But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. On the other hand, if an unbeliever were to come when somebody is prophesying, speaking a word of God, then maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit who has doing, been doing this for 2,000 years, may fall upon them and convict them and lead them to say, I can't stay the same way I've been anymore. So if you're following on your notes, prophecy can build believers and pierce an unbeliever's heart. And this is why, friends, we're committed here to preaching the word of God. There's no manipulating here. The only person who can change a heart is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God. And so we've committed ourselves to that. Whether that's prophecy in the way they understood it, I'm not sure. But it's how we believe that God can get a hold of somebody's life and open up the path of life that he offers. As one of the early church fathers said, the purpose of worship is not to astonish, but to bring people to a sense of wonder. It should expose them to the divine presence so that they confess, I ought not to live as I do, but must change and allow this God to affect that change. Then our hope is they ask the same question that the people asked at the end of Acts chapter 2. What must we do? What must we do? And Peter's answer is similar to what Paul imagines here in those verses we just read. He answers this way in Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, repent, change your mind, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the whole point is not whether you have the gift of prophecy or tongues. It's a matter of how am I using those for others. And friends, to me, this is really the bigger principle of this text I hope you walk away with today. This was not to be a message about tongues or prophecy, as interesting as that is. It's a message about how we can build other people up with the gifts that God has given us. In fact, right in the middle of the text, Paul pretty much gives us the principle dead on. He says it in verse 12. Let's read that out loud now on our notes together. It says, So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. The word we see over and over and over and over again in this passage, really all the way back to chapter 12, is the word edify. Edify. When I think about gathering together with the body of Christ, I'm thinking about how I can edify them. 
If you're on your notes there, edify means using what God has given me to build others up. Using what God has given me to build others up. This goes way beyond spiritual gifts, by the way, but it includes them. How can I use my talents? How can I use my time? How can I use the resources God has given me, not just for me? How can I use them to build others up? Here's the question Paul has been getting around to for these last two chapters. Are they more concerned about edifying themselves or others? If you're on your notes, are they more concerned about edifying themselves or others? If all you're concerned about is elevating yourself and the gifts you have, then we'll not be the church that God wants us to be. People in the church will not be edified, and the world will not take notice, because that's what they get every day in their workplaces. But if we gather together thinking, what can I give? How can I give of myself to others? When I go into my neighborhood thinking, how can I give of myself? When I go into my workplace thinking, how can I give of myself? When I go into my school and I'm thinking, how can I give of myself? That's how we edify others. I think it's so cool. Some of you may not know this, but there's a group of our high school students, and not just in our church, but in our entire community, who are this very night at Glenwood High School, even though it's other high schools, are hosting something called Enlightened. And here's a picture of this group. Enlightened is just a way, it's a worship night, essentially. And so they're inviting all the students at all these different schools to come and gather in one place over at Glenwood. And here's what's cool. I was talking to some of the kids who are on the leadership team of this, and some of them, they're awful at worship. But you know what? They're good at administration. And so one of them has been doing a lot of the administrative work behind the details. Others of them are awful at administration, but they're really great at worship. And so they're going to be leading these students in worship Some of them aren't good at either of them, but man, can they pray. And they have been praying together that God would do a mighty work at Glenwood tonight. What a beautiful picture of what it should look like for all of our churches. And we're going to pray for them later in the service here. But gosh, I'm so proud of them, aren't you? Thinking, how can I use what God has given me, not just for me, but for my fellow students as well? When I was young, one of the pastors I respected said something that has stuck with me ever since, even in difficult church situations that I've been in. He said, when we gather together, we should be more concerned about what we are giving than what we are getting. I would say that's the principle here. Unfortunately, I see the reverse in myself all the time. It's so easy to turn the gathering together of the church into a consumer product for me. And that's what the people with the gift of tongues were doing in Corinth. But I find myself doing it too, right? Oh, I don't like this worship. It's too contemporary for me. It's too traditional for me. So I'm just not even going to sing. Oh, we're here to edify one another, to lift our voices together. Or it can be even more serious. It's like the coffee here is just so weak. (laughs) I'm not sure I can... Nah, but we, we can find ourselves, start saying these things, believing these things. I want to say there's doesn't mean there's not a time to ask God about the church he wants you to be a part of, and there's never not a time perhaps to leave a church. But if our discontentment is coming from a place where it's like, this is about me, and they're not meeting my needs, 
then we got to be careful. Really, the question Paul wants us to ask is, if you're on your notes, what can I give instead of what can I get? What can I give instead of what can I get? That's the better way. That's the better way. Let me close with an illustration. Imagine you were going to go build yourself a home. One of the first things that you would do to build that home is you would collect the proper tools. You would want a saw. You would want a hammer. You'd want all kinds of tools. I'm just going to limit it to these two for the sake of this illustration. Now, let's say all that you had to build that home was a saw. That'd be really good at sawing the wood, but it wouldn't be so good at hammering the nails, right? Eventually, the nails might go down, but it would take a long time. Or what if you only had a hammer? You'd be very good at nailing those nails, but you wouldn't be so good at sawing wood. In fact, I can't even picture how you would do that. But if you had both of them serving their purpose, working together for the common good, eventually you would be able to build a house. Now, what we're building here is not a house. We're building something much more important, and I'm not even talking about a church. I'm not talking about Cherry Hills. I am talking about the fact that we are called to build the kingdom of God here on earth. That's the project God has every church working together on. That's what those students are doing. Thankfully, thankfully, God has given us every tool that we need to do that. He has filled every person with his Holy Spirit. And then he has given that person gifts that are to be used for the common purpose of glorifying God and edifying others. And as we put those gifts to use, that is how the kingdom of God is built here on earth. And that is how a watching world notices something is different about those people. And so I'll close with this question for you to consider. Will I use the gifts God has given me to build others up? Some of you may think, I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do, if you know Jesus. Well, my gifts aren't as important. Did you hear the message today? There are no more important gifts. We need every one of us working together for the common good to build the kingdom that God has dreamed for us to build here. We're going to have a chance now to sing about that very thing right now. I would encourage you to stand and let's declare these words together as his church. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.